Today, we'll see that gospel ministry is inherently incarnational. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll see that multiplication is in the very fabric of creation. We call it uh, creational church planting. And we'll also see that church planting is a cooperative venture. It's a church-led venture that involves all of us, not just a a particularly gifted few. When we jumped into this concept of apostolic church planting last week, we thought about how new churches come from new believers. We thought about the biblical example of church planting. We saw in Acts 17 the sort of 30,000-foot view. And then in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2, we got sort of the uh, nuts and bolts of what does it look like to be a member of a church plant, uh, biblically speaking. And then we applied that to the work that we're doing both here at Resurrection Church and here at this site in the Risen City Center and the eventual Risen City Church and how we want to continue doing that in other towns and neighborhoods across West Virginia. If last week was the what, then this week is the how. How does an everyday missionary actually live in the everyday stuff of life? The question is not, how do we plant churches? It's not a conference talk for a bunch of church leaders. But the question is rather, how do we embody and share the good news of Jesus? Because remember, I'm interested not in just equipping the elite, but I'm interested in everyday people planting the gospel in their lives. If we want to find out how we ought to go to others, what does it look like to live as a missionary, we must consider how Jesus came to us. And I think if we consider how Jesus came to us, we will stumble upon one of the most glorious doctrines of Scripture, the Incarnation. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to anchor ourselves in this glorious, humbling doctrine. The incarnation is far too rich and far too significant to only ponder at Christmas. To me, it is perhaps the most immediately practical and the most immediately humbling of any doctrine of Christ or Christological doctrine. May the Spirit move in us this morning individually and corporately. And may my microphone fit. I usually have some time before service to mold it to my ear and... I think Derek used our microphone, the evening church pastor, and I, I usually wear it on my right ear, but it's, it's molded to the left ear, and I'm not happy about it, but I'll, I'll call him after the service and stop gossiping. John chapter 1, let me read just verses 1 through 5 and then verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verses 1 through 5 have these glowing truths of this almighty God. The Greeks had this notion of the word, and this word was sort of this all-powerful deity-type figure. And John comes into his really spiritual gospel and says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Like this grandiose, big, marvelous picture of God that John paints. And then we keep reading through John 1, and then we get to verse 14, and verse 14 reads, And the Word, remember this God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
I don't think we often stop to ponder this doctrine, that this God, who was in the beginning with God, who made all things, not anything made that was made that he didn't make, and him was the life, and this life was the light of men, this great God, God himself, wrapped himself in flesh and lived for 30 years in absolute obscurity. What does that teach us about the nature of God? Paul places great emphasis on mimicking Christ throughout his writings. He tells the Corinthian church to follow him as he follows Christ. And I think last week we saw how he embodied the principles of incarnation in his gospel ministry. Last week's sermon was important. So if you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to hear it, check out the the app or the website and uh, please do go back and listen. We use the church at Thessalonica as a sort of case study for what church planting can look like and what church planting life ought to look like. For those of you who weren't here, let me just read. And if you were here last week, would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. And before we jump into this Philippians text, uh, I just want to read a few words from this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 through 12 begins, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Really quickly, for context, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. We know he spent a few weeks with this church in Thessalonica as the gospel was being planted and as the church was beginning to be harvested among them. And he's telling about his time with them. He says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share not only the gospel with you, but our whole lives. So really quickly, kind of knowing that sort of blow-by context, what can we see from this text, particularly as it relates to the incarnation, which is the doctrine of God becoming flesh? How does the doctrine of God becoming flesh impact the life that Paul seeks to live? Well, one thing I think we can see that Paul went to people. He didn't wait for them to come to him. Paul went to people. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He went to Thessalonica, and he lived among them. He didn't set up shop somewhere outside of Thessalonica and say, man, I hope that they come to hear me because I'm a very good preacher. Another thing we see is that Paul actually loved the people around him. The text says, being affectionately desirous of you, right? I actually love you, Paul says. Paul worked in their world. I think that's so significant that Paul became like them. He took a normal job as he lived among the people. The text says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day. And I talked last week about how biblical scholars are asserting that when he talks about this toil and work, he's actually talking about toil and work. Not just sort of doing gospel ministry, but working with his hands, doing manual labor uh, through the night at his own sort of uh, volition so that he wouldn't be a burden to the people. Paul came to their world. He loved them, and he worked in the world. He became like them. He took on a normal job as he lived among the people. Any good missionary in a foreign context is going to be one who doesn't rely on his westernness or her westernness. They become like the people where they live. They don't take exorbitant vacations all the time because they can, because the people they're ministering to can't do that. They don't do a lot of the things that they could do 
with their status as Westerners, but they choose not to, to become like the people that they are with. Remember the vocation of Paul particularly was that of a tent maker, right? We see that Paul exhorted, encouraged, and charged his brothers and sisters to walk in a certain way, how in a manner worthy of God. I want to make the case that Paul is doing these things because this is essentially what Jesus did. Jesus left his home in glory. Jesus came to a people who could not come to him. Jesus wrapped himself in flesh and became like a people who could not on their own become like him. And Jesus has come near to us. He's loved us. And he showed us the way, the truth, and the life. He in himself has revealed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And for us to live a life that's pleasing to God, we see the perfect example in Jesus Christ, our substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. In this text, Paul becomes a tent maker and dwells among his people. So the question I have then is how can we begin to, um, how can we begin to believe these doctrines? How can the doctrine sort of uh, affect our life? And Paul actually compels us to set our hearts and minds on the incarnation and allow that to transform us. So now look with me in Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, Paul begins, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's stop there. Those are verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 contain a, a very clear command that kind of has a few practical outflows, but the heart of the command is quite, quite simple, right? Beginning in verse 3, the text says what? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Well, the gospel of the United States of America says what? Do everything from ambition. Ambition is a virtue in our culture. In the Bible, ambition is almost always presented as a vice, something we must be aware of. What does redeemed ambition look like? What does redemptive ambition, what does ambition for the kingdom of God look like? But that's another sermon. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. This, this command, to count others more significant than yourselves, is not sort of in isolation. Jesus tells many parables where the point is to count others more significant than yourselves, right? When you go to a wedding feast, do you take the best seat? No, you don't take the best seat. You take the worst seat, right? We should count others more significant than ourselves. Verse 4, another command sort of said another way. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, it's not wrong to look to your own interest to a point. And what do I mean by that? It's this. In the great commandment, Jesus tells us to what? Love our neighbors how? As ourselves. There's this primordial self-love that's a good thing. This sort of, um, we know we need food. We know we need water. We know we need shelter. And, and meeting those needs for ourselves is not selfish. It's doing sort of the things. It, it's this proper love of self. But he's saying, let each of you not look only to his own interest. That only is important. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Don't just think about yourself, because if you're eaten up by ambition, you're going to think about yourself. If you're eaten up by conceit, you're going to uh, think about yourself. So we see these clear commands. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your interests, but also to those of others. But here's the problem. Clear commands don't always translate into clear obedience. Clear commands don't always translate into clear obedience. We hear all kinds of things from the Bible that we 
agree with, but don't really practice. For instance, how do we do with loving our enemies, right? Do we really love our enemies? Or is it one of those things, oh, Jesus said to love our enemies, yeah, we'll love our enemies, but we don't actually love our enemies, and we'll talk about our enemies, and we'll drag our enemies down. Even though the Bible tells us to love our enemies, we don't do that because it's not advantageous for us, it isn't helpful for us, it isn't satisfying for us. So we sort of leave this um, command of Jesus on the altar of our own comfort. And I think we can file this one in that category of truths that we hear and we want other people to extend to us, but we don't want to extend to other people. It sounds awesome to do nothing from selfish ambition. It sounds awesome to count others more significant than myself. It sounds awesome to think about their needs more than just my needs. All that sounds great, but here's the question. How can we do it? And I think in the rest of the text, Paul gives us an extremely, extremely practical answer. How can we begin to see these things happen in our lives? Here's my simple answer. Fix our hearts, fix our minds on the incarnation. Fix our hearts and fix our minds on the incarnation nation. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is almost like a secondary command. This is a command you keep to keep the command that you really struggle to keep, if that makes sense. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, the ESV translates it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think like this. Think like Jesus. Think like this example that you already have for you in Christ Jesus. Even more than that, I think we could interpret this text as to say, think like this, which you can do because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. This isn't just something for the super spiritual or those who are really far advanced in their walk with God, but this is something that you can do because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way and notice the plurality, right? Have this mind among yourselves. That's an individual sense and then a corporate sense, and we'll talk about that later. Don't think like you're naturally inclined to think. Think like Jesus thinks. And Jesus empowers you to overcome those natural inclinations and think the way that he thinks. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this text does not imply that Jesus was not equal with God. In fact, if Jesus is not equal with God, this text falls apart. And and what I mean by that is this. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. I like the way the CSB translates that a little bit better. Um, The CSB is the Christian Standard Bible. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited. A thing to be exploited. I think that captures the original essence of the text a little bit more. And what he means by that is he didn't count his godliness, his fact that he is God, as something that should work for him in the everyday sort of stuff of life. The picture I get here is uh, like the frat bro, right, who has really rich parents. And so he does all kinds of terrible stuff to the campus, maybe perhaps, and uh, he gets caught, but they don't kick him out of school. Why? Because his parents are big donors to the school. You know, it's almost like, you know who my dad is. If anyone could say, you know who my dad is, and use that to get out of problems, surely it could be Jesus. Now that we're talking about fraternities, remind me to tell you about the time that that I was uh, pledging with a fraternity. Uh, I was a dry pledge. That means there was no alcohol. 
uh, and it was the worst few weeks of my life. So, uh, yeah, we'll tell that story um, sometime. Terrible, terrible time. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself, right? Jesus chose not to claim the right that come with being that incarnate word, right? Jesus chose to empty himself. There's a picture I heard a, a missionary preach who was preaching to people in sort of an indigenous context and um, out, in, out in the sticks somewhere, um, and he was sharing a, this sort of idea with them and, and said, imagine that someone has fallen into a well and the chief of your village uh, is like the biggest, strongest, fastest guy in the village and he's got, you know, this magnificent chiefly um, hair, you know, headdress and this magnificent chiefly robe and garments and, and so he walks around and everywhere he goes, everyone knows, man, this guy's in charge, right? This is the dude. This is, this is the one who leads us and, and so he has this sort of very visible um, you know, very visible splendor about him. And someone falls into this well. And moved by love, right, the chief goes to the well and he takes off his headdress, right? He, he unrobes the fancy robes from around him and he gets down in the well and gets it. When he takes off his headdress, when he takes off his robes, he didn't cease being the chief. He just became the chief in rescue mode. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. When he wraps himself in flesh, he doesn't cease being God. He simply becomes God in rescue mode. He was born in the likeness of men. The incarnate God entered earth through a body, fluids and all. Not to get graphic, but you need to see that to see the miracle of the incarnation. But not only did he enter the world through a body, fluids and all, but upon his arrival, there was no room for him in the world he created. And upon his arrival, he had a proclamation of his birth sent, not to the nobility, but to shepherds. This incarnation is telling us a lot about the character of God. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see sort of almost this descending humility in Paul's writing. The incarnate God humbled himself by being born of human, right, by being born of woman. Not only did he humble himself by that, but he humbled himself by living in obscurity for 30 years. He humbled himself by being this sort of an average everyday Joe as, as a carpenter. He humbled himself by associating with the lowly and forgotten. He humbled himself by being accused of things he did not do. He humbled himself by sort of sitting under a sham trial at the hands of sinful men. And finally, he humbles himself by Dying, not only dying, but dying the most shameful death. But his obedience was not in vain. Look with me in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Father. That therefore in verse 9 is massive. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. Jesus took the posture of a servant and the Father made him king. Jesus took the posture of a servant and the Father made him king. The glory of Jesus reminds us, the end of this little narrative reminds us that we don't have to look out for ourselves. Not only is it good news that we don't have to look out for ourselves, but it's really good news when we realize that someone much better, someone much wiser, someone much stronger is looking out for us. 
How do we put the interests of others above ourselves? How can we do the impossible? It's when we realize that there's one who's far greater who has our best interests at heart. How do we do this? How can we do the impossible? The answer's not complicated, but it ain't easy. It's look to Jesus. See his example. See his living. See his dying. And see his rising. And know how God intervenes in our lives. This isn't an individual reality, it's a corporate reality, and that's where it can get a little sticky. But I think that's where it gets a little bit powerful. So how does all of this, right, how does this doctrine of the incarnation and and placing other people above ourselves, why does that have anything to do with church planting? Why does that have anything to do with the way that the church grows? Uh, I think it's huge. I think it changes our entire posture towards the outside world. If you're taking notes, this is a sentence that I think is helpful, right? This missional impulse pushes us out, but this incarnational impulse pushes us down, right? This missional impulse, this desire to go and share the gospel, this desire to go into new towns and plant the gospel among people, that missional impulse pushes us out, uh, but that incarnational impulse pushes us down, We have really grasped in our day, I think, in evangelicalism, the reality that we are sent, right? That we are people who God has sent on mission. But I think we really need to do the hard work of digging into the implications of that reality. Because Jesus didn't stop with being sent, but his mission began once he was sent. I'm convinced that many of us uh, have untethered the great commandment to love God from the great commission to go and make disciples. And I want to remind us that if we try to make disciples without fixing our minds on Jesus, we're not gonna like the sorts of disciples that we make, and neither will our neighbors. Yeah, go share the gospel and make disciples, but while we're doing that, we have to remember that our general orientation towards the world is that of a servant, not of a Lord is that of a servant, not of a Lord. We have to get in the muck and mire of the real world. We have to think more about building gospel bridges than building cultural walls. We cannot be afraid of the very people we're called to love. We don't use our status as God's children as something to exploit. Rather, it frees us to serve others, knowing our ultimate worth is fixed and unaffected by our status, our job title, or our tax bracket. When we are filled up by Christ, we are free to pour ourselves out for others. See, there's a paradigm shift that I want to see happen in our life as a church and in the, the corporate church's life, but I, I don't pastor the corporate church. Jesus does that. I just am an under-shepherd of, of, of this one. It's not about collecting what we can for resurrection. It's about giving resurrection away for God's kingdom. It's not about collecting what we have for our brand. It's about how can we give ourselves away for God's kingdom. And if we're going to dig into those realities, because that's what Jesus does, right? Jesus comes near to us. He, he, he chooses not to exploit or use his power. I mean, think of how God could have come to earth. Think of how Jesus could have come to earth. Think of how he could have saved the world. Think of all the ways that God could have revealed himself to us. Yet he chooses 
the incarnation. He chooses to wrap himself in a human body. He chooses to live in obscurity for 30 years. He chooses to serve without fanfare. He chooses to love the unlovable. He chooses to associate with the undesirable. And he chooses the cross where our salvation is accomplished. Jesus didn't seek to please himself, so we can't seek to please ourselves. Jesus didn't hole up in a bunker, so we can't hole up in a bunker, no matter how well decorated the bunker might be. Jesus came to us. We must then go to others. Jesus rubbed this religious status quo the wrong way. We can expect that that might happen to to us. In the incarnation, Jesus orients himself towards fallen man. And the question I have, church, are we oriented towards the world around us, or are we more impressed with sort of what the rest of Christendom thinks about us? Right? Are we oriented towards the outside world? Are we oriented towards the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who in our city and, and across our valley who do not know Christ? I think this is a, an individual reality, but I think this is a corporate reality. I think God calls us to, to not think about ourselves individually, right? But I also think that applies to the whole church, that we're not called to just think about building us and, and that Jesus says he's gonna build his church. I think multiplication begins to happen when we stop just trying to feed an organization and we start taking the kingdom of God with us into the everyday stuff of life. And then organizationally, we can think what are systemic responses to organic realities. God is moving, now what do we do? God is moving, how do we join him? God is moving, how do we respond? One of our five distinctives is this, we seek to leverage our resources for the good of our neighbor. We seek to leverage our resources for the good of our neighbor. Uh, this is all over the Bible, but in particular, uh, one place. In Jeremiah, um, some people had come in amongst God's people and they had convinced them that they were not gonna be in Babylonian captivity for much longer. So for some time now, God's people have been in exile in Babylon. And some false prophets from their midst have come among them and said, listen guys, we're almost out of here. We're almost done with this whole Babylonian episode of our life. So let's just coast it out, like a, you know, a senior in college, let's just coast out this last semester, let's just coast out the last little bit of this, and let's get out of here. So they were excited about this because the, the end was in sight of their Babylonian captivity. Well, God sends his prophet, the true prophet, to his people, Jeremiah, and he says, I want you to tell these people that those prophets are false prophets. I want you to tell my people that they ain't going anywhere. And I want you to tell my people that they should start planting some gardens. I want you to tell my people that they should start getting married. He said, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your own. And I think there are some false prophets in our midst today who would like to make us think that they know Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I mean, America's going downhill, therefore Jesus isn't happy, therefore it's all happening, therefore God's coming back tomorrow, therefore end the story. Like, let's just go to our church and let's just pray that we'll get to heaven safely and that it'll all be over soon and that everything will be okay. But I think we don't have the luxury of believing such things. We don't know the day or the hour when the eastern sky will explode and the risen Lord will descend to return. We have no idea. 
So I think we're left to assume that we're going to be here for a little while. So since we're going to be here for a little while, what does it look like to live as God's people in this reality? What does it look like to be, as Eugene Peterson would say, a a colony of heaven in a country of death? What does it look like to be salt and light that has an effect on the world around us? I think then these principles lead us to say we want to genuinely love our city, but we live in a day where that's like a ministerial catchphrase. And I'm not immune to that. Um, no other churches are immune to that. That, that. It's in vogue, right? It's in vogue to be for the city. And I think one of the reasons it's in vogue is um, some, some, some poor cultural readings. I think there's some uh, misappropriation. I think there's some misinterpretation. I think there's a lot of reasons that it's, it's cool. We want to be where the action is. And I think sometimes that's an urge to, to be resisted. But I think there's still a biblical principle underneath all of that, 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 that we are to love the people around us for in their welfare we'll find our welfare, that we're to seek out the outsiders, the people who aren't in our faith, that we are to live as salt and light, that we are missionary people who live our lives quorum Deo, right, in the face of God so others can see such a life and others can perhaps live such a life themselves. Right? Everyone wants to go to a church that loves the city. Everyone wants to go to a church that's doing work until they actually have to do something, until it actually costs them something. Like it's not beneath us to be servants to the people around us. It's not beneath us to serve the people who live in our neighborhoods. Whether you live in the poorest neighborhood in town or the richest neighborhood in town, it is not beneath us to love the people that God has placed around us. Because all of life is lived out before the face of God. This is holy ground. This cheap stage that we made out of, I don't really even remember, is holy ground. That carpet that we roll up and roll back is holy ground. Not because a church meets here once a week, but because it's always before the face of Almighty God. This is holy grounds where kids can get good food and get resources. The theater can be holy ground where communities can tell their story, where art can be portrayed. Jesus didn't do what was easy, and neither should we. Jesus lived his life for the outsider. Jesus served the outsider as if they were an insider, and then perhaps they may become an insider, right? We ought to love the people in our lives. Church, we have to ask such questions, not what ministries do we do for other people, but how are we oriented towards the world around us? And this is where I think for me, this idea of incarnational church planting comes. I think when we retether the great commandment to love God and love others with the command to make disciples, we're recapturing the type of stuff that is the ingredients in a move of God. Because when everyday people live out the mission of God, not with their church's logo on their t-shirt necessarily, but that are, are loving people and serving people, then people can see a difference in their lives. Evangelicals, we love to make fun of the statement that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, right? Preach the gospel and when necessary use words. Of course that's not fully true. Of course you have to use words to preach the gospel. Good news, tell the news but don't use words. But why do statements like that exist? 
Because we don't do it, right? Statements like that exist because there's a sentiment we're trying to express, and that sentiment we're trying to express is that we don't need to just hear a message, we need to see a life change. And I think there can be multiplication when good news people live out the implication of that good news. How do we live out the implication of the good news? How do we put others before ourselves? Well, that's an implication of the good news, right? Because Jesus humbled himself and then God exalted him. We trust that if we humble ourselves, if we take the posture of a servant like Jesus did, then perhaps God will reward us in his time and his way in glory. So that is, simply by doing that, it's living out the implication of the good news. I think sometimes we can say live out the implications of the gospel without saying what that looks like. Here's one concrete example, right? Think about Jesus, fix your mind on Jesus, and put other people before yourself. And when you do that, you are living out the implications of the gospel. Res church planting teams, whether you're with Resurrection Church downtown, in our community is more of just whoever across our city, right? Whoever across our valley will live, work, and play in their communities. Gospel planting is incarnational. It follows the pattern of Jesus wrapping himself in flesh and coming to earth and living among us. Good news people will bear good news and live out the implications of that good news. Like Christ, we must love our neighbors in tangible ways. How can we plant churches of new believers? Well, the first thing we gotta ask is, how do we see new believers? And I think the answer is, new believers have to hear and respond to the gospel. But the message is a whole lot easier to hear and respond to when you see it in motion as well. Your good works won't save anybody, but your good works will help them understand the message that leads them to salvation. But it might not happen quick. You know, in just a few years, you know, our church has renovated this building, turned into a community center, working to plant this church, helped renovate parts of the Capitol Theater. And renovate. Do people give us a standing ovation for that? No. I don't go on the news for, like, I, people aren't pumped about those things that we're doing. But I think Christ is pleased. And I think the neighborhood will be served. And I think new churches then can be formed when communities of people enter their neighborhood asking not just can I talk to you for a minute, but can I serve you for a minute. Like Christ, we must love our neighbors in tangible ways. Like Christ, we must pursue the outsider, and like Christ, we must live as servants. Worship team, if you guys could come on up. As we close, I want to encourage us that we must leverage all we have to plant the gospel. All we need is all we've got. And let's see what God does. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your son who wrapped himself in flesh and came to walk the roads that we walk, came to live the sort of life that we live, and died in our place. Lord, as we think about 
planting the gospel and seeing churches started keep us from believing that we are smarter than everyone else. Keep us from paternalistic mindsets that our forms and our ideas are superior to all other forms and ideas. Make us a humble people, Lord, and I know that prayer is a a, a dangerous prayer, but it is so countercultural to put the needs of others before yourself. It is so countercultural to love people that may not reciprocate that love. Lord, we pray that we will see new churches planted from new believers. But Lord, would you make us willing to do whatever it takes to see that happen? Will you make us humble enough and teachable enough that we live like you and that we look like you and so if we get cut we just bleed you and the world around could see you you've drawn near to us may we draw near to those around us in Christ's name we pray amen